Creature o'clock, so ring that buzzer. It sounds like a lion roar. Roar! And open the door to join us for the 27th meeting of the Animal Fan Club. I'm a frustrated pair of rats trying to find an available alfresco high top for two. Mike. I'm not in quarantine. I'm just hibernating, Meredith. I am philosophizing feathered friend Freud, Erica. We meet every week at our clubhouse we like to call the Dalmatian Station. To talk about our favorite animals. What we lack in expertise, we make up for an unbridled enthusiasm and childlike wonder. Wow! So saddle up that miniature seahorse and hold on tight for the furriest, fin-filled, and feathered podcast in all of the kingdom animalia. Welcome special guest, Erica Dicker. Hi! Yay! Welcome, Erica! Yay! Thanks for having me! Yes, Yes. you're very welcome. Erica is another CCM alum, although the three of us were not there at the same time. Erica was there just after Meredith and I left. Erica plays the violin. Woo! She's quite accomplished. She plays with my preferred Tony Braxton, Anthony Braxton. My preferred Tony Braxton as well. (laughs) My preferred Tony Braxton. I love that. (laughs) Meredith, I just am going to go ahead and elucidate my name, a frustrated pair of rats trying to find an available alfresco high top for two, and tell you that I was on a walk and there was this sort of open alfresco bar area that clearly had not been reopened yet for the summer season. Yeah. And these two rats were just kind of wandering around the area. They like walked in through the front gate and then they walked over by the bar and then they kind of walked around and then I saw them you know five minutes later coming back out because they hadn't found an available high top (laughs) they kind of like scurried over to the staircase to see if there was any seating upstairs and it didn't appear that there was any that is ridiculous yeah you really threw me for a loop with that one I was like (laughs) well how was everybody's week in animals I'll go I've kind of had a bit of a journey (laughs) Mike, last week in our um, feedback, we talked about the most metal animals. We did. Yeah. And the one I was talking about, um, I went to go find out what actual creature, because I was just describing it very vaguely, is like, he was like a pig thing, but he had long black metal hair and these really metal tusks and stuff. So I went on the Cincinnati Zoo's website and I, where I had originally seen the footage of this guy, and I found out that it's Walter the Warthog. <gasps> Who was this very metal warthog. Yeah, and I was just so obsessed with Walter, and so I just Googled him, and I found out last night he actually died in December. Oh, Oh, no. I know, and I feel bad being such a downer right off the bat, but, like, I was so excited about this creature, and I was, like, his new biggest fan, and I was just, like, watching all these videos of him. He was initially an animal ambassador, but then when he kind of grew too boisterous for that role to be, like, interacting with children... They moved him into the Savannah exhibit. So they had this footage. This is what I showed you, Mike, of him acclimating to all of his new Savannah pals. Yeah, he was kind of meeting his ostrich friend and he was sort of (laughs) bumping around the big play ball, like the yoga ball that they keep in the herbivore play area, I guess. He seemed really cute and kind of like full of vim and vigor. So I'm I'm a little sad to hear that he passed. I know. Yeah, it was 
quite a surprise to me. I just kind of sat stunned for a moment. It was literally just like, I guess, two days before this that I found out that I was obsessed with him. Right. <laughs> but anyway, we love you, Walter. We hope you're in that great big savanna in the sky. Rest in, in peace and in metal, little metal yeah. head. Yeah. <laughs> Guys, speaking of the most metal animal of all time, are you familiar with the band Hatebeak, which is fronted by an African gray parrot? I think they were briefly inactive, but they resumed recording after a hiatus in twenty in twenty fifteen or twenty eighteen. So yeah, like Hatebeak is back in the mix. What's the deal with Hatebeak? Like, is it a human band that also? Yeah, the the lead singer is a parrot. You should check him out. And then backed by humans, but sorry. Speaking of parrots, Stan is um. This is my friend Stan. He's. A huge fan of Hate Beak, actually. But yeah, anyway, so the front man, the front bird for this band <laughs> is an African gray parrot. That is the coolest thing ever. I'm, I know exactly what I'm doing right when I get off this podcast. Totally recording. check it out. It's, they don't tour, you know, just so that there's no cruelty. The bird yeah. does not need to suffer more than the bird suffers. So. Yeah. Stan seems to be reciting some of his favorite lyrics from he Hate is, He is. Yeah, I'm sorry. You picked his most sassy time. I love it. Yeah, I guess we should maybe just briefly talk about Stan. What? Uh, who is? What's going on with Stan? Who's Stan? He's also on the podcast. Stan is an amazing budgie who is on a quest for self-actualization. <laughs> Great. Okay. Well, we're going to talk more about him later, I guess. So I think that's a really great place to leave our current stand situation. Wonderful. This is, I think this is, the, yeah, this is our first bird guest. Yeah. Class Aves is really kicking it up a notch. I know. This is great. So, Meredith, we need to talk about the Cane Toad documentary ah! <laughs> because I watched it. Have you seen this, Erica? It's called Cane Toads, An Unnatural History. No, this sounds incredible. It is cool. Yeah. Hold on. Gotta write this down. Oh, I love, I love. Cain like, Cain and Abel, or Cain as in, ah. like, crawls amongst the canes. The latter. Sugar cane. Cool. Yeah, and it's on YouTube, and it's, like, less than an hour long. It's going to be the funniest hour of your life. And you'll learn something, too. Yeah, pretty much these cane toads were released in Australia to help manage pests that live in the sugar cane and they didn't do a very good job of that but they did a very good job of reproducing and kind of invading the countryside and they're quite a pest because they're poisonous if you eat them oh shit i know they've really captured the hearts and imaginations of many of the <laughs> residents of australia and they interview several of them you watch this stuff and it's like what world is this what world are these people living in there needs to be a Cane Toad the musical, I think. <gasps> I agree with that. And Stan can star in it because he's like Australian. Oh my gosh! Yes! That would be perfect. Oh, he could be the narrator. Amazing. If he could just submit a resume to our casting agent, that would really be great. Brand clubby casting. Well, Meredith, I think that we should probably just kind of kick it off. I don't know how you Yeah, feel. I think we should definitely do that. I feel like I'm going to just ramble on because I'm really into these creatures that I'm about to introduce you to. Well, let's uh, kick it off with the old taxonomy cheer. Ready? Okay. Taxonomy you. Taxonomy we. Taxonomy who. Taxonomy. 
Kingdom. Animalia. Discover them with zoology. Phylum. Chordata. It's the phylum I'm most comfortable around. Class. Mammalia. This one's got some great body hair. Order. Singulata. Oh, hail the great Sinarthra. Family. Clamphoridae, plates of dermal bone. Genus. Catofractus, like many tanks with hair. Species. Catofractus velorosus. Don't pick one up or it will yell at you. It's the screaming hairy armadillo. Yes, armadillos. Oh my God, armadillos. Yes. yes. <laughs> We're finally doing armadillo. I know, we've completed the Xenarthra trifecta, y'all. So just a little recap. So Xenarthra is the super order. Between class and order, there's a super order. So another rank. And the super order is Xenarthra. And we've talked about them before. And I'm so obsessed with the Xenarthrans. Because this includes some of my other favorites, like the sloth. And also the anteaters. Yes, the myrmecophages. Myrmecophagia. And so we've also covered... Some of the other families that were previously included, erroneously included as the Narthrans, the Aardvarks and the Pangolins. The prescient Pangolin, man. Holy moly. Oh my gosh, I'm so obsessed with them. I love how they've made quite the splash lately. Yes. They're kind of everywhere. And I saw somebody, you know, those like things on Instagram or I don't, I've never done it, but those things where it's like figure out your genetic makeup or whatever. and it, Like a 23 in me? No, it's like one of those things. There was one that was like a discover your Disney character character in your story. Oh, it it does the flappy thing on your head and then it does the solid thing. It's like, which character am I? And then it goes flap, 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 flap. Jasmine. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so they're doing one with like genetic makeup. It pretends to like analyze your face, but it's just a silly thing. But I saw somebody do one and they got pangolin. And it did this like graphic where it like stretched their face out and they totally went with it. They like stretched their face out and they're like, like kind of seahorsing with their mouth. Anyway, it made me laugh really hard. So yeah, pangolins are very prescient right now and I love that. But they're not true Xenarthrans. That was an erroneous classification. Right. Um, Though they do, oddly, it's more that convergent evolution stuff where they do look a lot like anteaters and kind of locomote the same way as anteaters and eat the same things. But anyway, so let's go through some tax facts about these guys. So class mammalia, obviously, but then when we get to order, this is where it gets really interesting. So there's actually two orders within Xenarthra. So we've got the Pelosa that we've talked about, sloths and anteaters. Uh Then here we've got Singulata. And so Singulata are um, these armored New World placental mammals. So this is where the, the Dillos fall. They're in the Singulata. Okay. Armored New World. Placental Mammals. Placentals. Okay, sure. Dude, that's my new metal band name. The Armored New World Placental Mammals. Absolutely. Yes. I love that you brought up metal because there's like going to be this metal theme that kind of runs through all of this, which I'm just obsessed with how this stuff just always so serendipitously falls together. So just... Stay on board. Oh, no, I'm so on board. I'm already envisioning, like, a guar-like band that's all, like, (laughs) armored exactly via these amazing New World placental miracles. It's so, oh, my gosh. This is all so perfect. There's a whole birth sequence every show. (laughs) I love this. 
and Zanarthra itself sounds like it could be just like oh hell yeah epic metal name right yeah. so we've got these singulata so that's referring to these armored placental mammals Plamphoridae. this is the family so these armadillos this is where we're kind of breaking apart the two different kinds of armadillos so the kinds we're talking about the screaming hairy armadillos these guys are hairy unlike their co-family the daisy podids <laughs> the dasipodids <laughs> And those are the long-nosed armadillos. So those are the ones you're going to see actually more in North America, like in Texas and Arkansas. That divergence is at the family level. That's at the family. Yeah, and so when we get down to the genus, we're at Catofractus, and that's where we're into just the three species of hairy dillos. The big hairy and the Andean hairy, along with the screaming hairy. <laughs> Jeez, Harold. <laughs> I love Harry Dillos. <laughs> Harry Dillos is very funny. Can't get enough. Yeah, and then finally we get to the star of this show, the Screaming Harry Armadillo. And they are called Screaming because if you pick one up, it's kind of like a cross between like a baby cry and a weird agitated cat meow. Sure. So I didn't love these YouTube videos because these animals only do this sound when they're distressed. So I didn't like the idea of people just picking these things up just to like freak them out and make them make this noise. But it's kind of this like it's That sounds like a hairy dillo in distress. That is. But I do like the idea of one kind of like fronting a metal band too. Yeah, but also, too, the hairy part, if you look at them growing out of their plates of armor, otherwise known as their scoots, they've got these long hairs. So, again, kind of like our dear Walter the Warthog, who had this long, kind of crazy metal mane. They've got these long, bristly hairs growing out of their plates of armor. And so, again, to just complete the absolute best metal look. I've heard scoot used for crocodile armor, too. Oh, really? Yeah, like the little spiny things on the top of the crocodilians are called scoots. I love that. I didn't know there was a crossover between these reptiles and our singulata friends, but that's cool. Yeah, that's it's spelled cool. S-C-U-T-E. E-S, yeah. Yeah. I'll designate where I'm talking about just armadillos in general and when I'm talking specifically about our screaming hairy armadillo. Specifically with the screaming hairy armadillo, as Wikipedia says, these are the smallest and the slenderest of the armadillos. <laughs> so they're generally about 14 inches, but with longer ears. And I mentioned they're long bristly hairs that grow out from between their plates. And these plates form, again, another crossover term. The plates form what's called, Mike, do you know from our, our Shelly Day friends? Remember this term? Which ones were the Shelly Day again? Turtles. Turtles were, oh, so it's the plastron. No, it's the carapace. Oh, the carapace. The plastron is the catcher. The yes. carapace is on the back. Okay. Yeah. The catcher pad. But good to bring in because I couldn't remember plastron. <laughs> Erica, you like baseball, right? Yeah. That pad that the catchers wear on the front of them. Yeah. On a turtle, that part's called the plastron. <gasps> Can we, we just need to have catchers have special plastron turtle-like inspired yeah yeah. Oh, yeah oh that would be so cool it would be very fun also specific to our screaming hairy armadillos is they have 
18 bands total, so 18 scoots, which are made of keratin, so similar to the scales on our pangolin. And then six to eight of them are movable. But there are some armadillos that are three-banded, and I'll talk about some of those later. Some are nine-banded. The three-banded ones are the only ones that kind of do that characteristic rolling up where they can roll into a perfect ball. But the other armadillos are actually, they have too many plates, so they can't actually roll into a ball like that. That's a bummer. I know, because if you look at the three-banded ones when they roll up, they, it is literally a perfect ball. Like one of these is the head and one is the tail. So when they meet in the ball, they kind of perfectly fit together, kind of like two puzzle pieces. To the point where they could actually like roll around because it is such a perfectly shaped sphere. It's really crazy. Well, do they roll around? I don't think they actually like mean to. It might just be an effect of them being such a perfect sphere, but it's definitely a defense pose. So when they feel threatened, they just do this like roll up. I could see kind of like a, a predator, a coyote, for instance, kind of trying to like scoot them around and like figure out what's inside. And then that would in effect roll them about. I don't know that they roll on purpose. Okay. <laughs> Though I totally would if I were. All a dark crystal fizz gig sort of situation, yeah. you know? <laughs> as in the rolly ball as a means of transit. Not quite that, but ideally. Ah, oh, you're just crushing my Dillo dreams. Dillo dreams? No! <laughs> well, a Dillo dream. And where do they live? So, like many of the uh, Xenarthrins, they're all pretty much located in South America and then some up into Central America and even Southern North America. But these guys specifically, it's Argentina, Bolivia, Paraguay, because they love kind of like a tropical, subtropical, kind of arid climate, even desert. But the key thing being that they need burrowable terrain because they love to burrow. So like sand is great or kind of a sandy soil mix is good because these are burrowers. But like a rocky situation is probably less than stellar, unless there's dirty places to burrow. How right. deeply do these little deers burrow? Actually, all of the Xenarthans have really great clawed fingers, and they're all known for being great diggers. Or in the case of the sloth, they kind of use their claws to both hang and kind of pull at the bark and get bugs that way. But they're all really good diggers and are actually bodily, like physically built. I always think of anteaters as being like so well built for this. They have very strong upper bodies and just great digging capabilities with their huge long claws. So these guys are the same. So they just, they get right in there. Somebody from the Cincinnati Zoo was on the news with like, oh gosh, what is that newscaster's name? I forget. I've been watching him since I was little. But anyway, they were on there and this zookeeper was like blowing their mind because she was like, these guys actually like to burrow under carcasses, like decaying carcasses. Again, metal. Totally. Yeah, they dig under and even sometimes into decaying carcasses because there's so much bug material for them to eat. Oh man, like carcass would be bug heaven. I know. It's like a bug buffet of decaying creatures. So they even go under there. So it's both shelter and food. I mean, what could be better? Again, like all the others in Narthrins, they've got great sense of smell, but really poor eyesight. Let's see what else I have. They do have teeth. So unlike the anteaters, which actually have no teeth at all, this is kind of an interesting thing in what kind of indicates how primitive that they are. That they, are. they don't, like us, have specialized teeth. Like we've got canines, incisors, molars that are equipped to deal with their omnivorous diet. Whereas 
the armadillos have just very kind of primitive teeth. Like there's no designation between like molar or bicuspid or anything like that. So it's just all kinds of just very primitive, basic teeth structures, basic dentition, they say. But like our um, aardvark friends, actually, they have cheek teeth, Mike, which you talked about. Cheek teeth. Cheek teeth. So cheek teeth come up often when you're talking about these very early animals, these kind of more primitive, been around for a long time, these ancient animals that just, they've kind of evolved away or they just have never, I guess, evolved a more highly developed teeth structure like some of us other mammals have. Okay, I couldn't really find a whole lot about armadillos getting sexy, like I often like to talk about with animals, but the interesting thing about them is their progeny, so their reproduction. So say we're talking about the hairy, screaming armadillo. They can either give birth to like one, two, or three young, but the ones at the zoo, actually, they always have given birth to two sets of twins and they're always male and female oh my god that's amazing isn't that crazy and so get this keeping this kind of metal thing going one of these pairs they're named axel and rose and another one of the pairs i mean that's like pop metal but one of the other pairs is named alice and cooper and they're the cutest that's amazing (laughs) yeah i was like this couldn't get any better that warms my heart so i know and then there's another screaming hairy armadillo there named snuckles poor snuckles when i was in columbus ohio one time i went to cosi which is like a science institute there and they had these two rats playing basketball like kind of in the front entryway and they were like well this is rose and this is dorothy so afterwards of course i went up and was like well where is sophia and blanche and they're like oh yeah they're in the back don't worry like we definitely (laughs) named all four of our basketball rats after the golden girls basketball rats like they were actually playing basketball yeah they were you know doing tricks it wasn't it wasn't like a regulation nba size court or anything like that (laughs) okay Good. I can picture this a little bit better now. Stands really into the basketball rats. If you guys want some more like interactive time or just footage of armadillos, so the Cincinnati Zoo has been doing these like virtual safaris and there's a whole one about armadillos and you get to meet three different species. So you get to meet the nine banded armadillo named Dilbert. (laughs) I think they even introduce him as like the man, the legend. Dilbert. And then you also meet two of the three banded, so the ones that roll up. I think one of their names was like Chaco or something. You also meet Snuckles, the hairy screaming armadillo. But the three bandits are so cute because they're the ones, again, these are ones that you would see more often in like the southern United States. And unlike their plantigrade cousins, the screaming hairy armadillos, these the three bandits seem to be more detigrade, Mike. Like they're running around on their little claws. Yeah. And they scurry so fast that they look like little tanks, like these little armored vehicles just like kind of rolling around because they look like they're rolling because you can't see their feet and how fast they're scurrying. So it just looks like this little like smooth moving tank kind of moving along the floor. And all three species were just like hanging out together. And they, it was like, they had like, you know, those tubes that dogs run through on like agility courses. Of course. They had those set up and the armadillos were like running through those. They had like a whole ball pit that they were hiding mealworms in for Dilbert to like root around in. Hell yeah. 
It was, like, so fun. And just the sounds of it, like, all of them, like, sniffing and scuttling around and, like, balls being jostled in the ball pit. It was just, like, so much. And I love that all three of the species, like, hung out together. I was really losing my mind. It was great. Yeah. Those virtual safaris are everything. They're really great. They're so wonderful. So the digitigrade means they're kind of, like, up on their toes. They're not, like, fully on point, like, undulagrade, but they're, like, on their toes. Yeah. They're not doing that claw thing, are they, that our giant anteaters did? Their claws are out. Claws are out. Yeah. Cool. This is another cool armadillo, and this is the tiniest one. It's about, like, the size of a chipmunk. It's called the pink fairy armadillo. The pink fairy armadillo. And it's so cute, but it's, like, really tiny, but its feet are, like, really big and completely flat on the ground, as opposed to these three bandits that are just kind of up. They almost do look like they're on point, though. It's really funny. Where does the pink fairy armadillo live? Kind of in the same um, central south, like, in the middle of south America, um, kind of like right in the middle there. So kind of in that Argentina, Paraguay, Bolivia region. Okay. They seem to be kind of hard to witness in the wild. There's not a lot of info about them because I think they're pretty rare to see. But they're also super tiny, like chipmunk size. I can't even really imagine that. No, it's very difficult to wrap one's brain around. I know. It's kind of blowing my mind. I want to go visit Central South America and see if they can grant my wishes. Right? Oh, gosh, what a dream that would be. It's like there's birders and then there's armadilloers that are just out to look at all, like, the catch, catch a glimpse of all 20 of the species of armadillos out there. I'm shocked. I was going to ask. I'm shocked that there's 20 species of armadillos. I thought that there was only one, to be quite frank. I didn't realize it was such a diverse family. I know. It's crazy. I just always think about the ones that, you know, are very characteristic of, like, Texas. and. But really, you start looking at them all together, like, one species after another. And some are hairy. Some are, like, are a little more flat to the ground. Some kind of have, like, a weird kind of extra plate on their forehead. The diversity in appearance between all of these is really kind of crazy that I'd never considered before. It's very, very cool. And there's even sub two subspecies within the screaming hairy armadillo. It's like <laughs> creature magic, right? It's nuts. Yeah, creature magic indeed. I'm just going to give another fun smattering of facts just about armadillos in general just before I finish up here. I love so, that. Yeah, I this blew my mind. So Armadillos are actually used a lot in leprosy research because they have such a low temperature that they're actually like are able to, I don't really understand this language, but they're able to systemically catch leprosy and even pass it to humans. So they can act as a vector for the disease. Oh, wow. That is so interesting. Well, I always knew that they were harbingers of some disease, but leprosy, that's really... Isn't that strange? But they did say that... So these are definitely New World creatures. They're only in South Central America. They definitely originated in what used to be just back in Pangaea days, the isolated, what is now South America. Sure. So I think it was prior to the quote-unquote discovery of the New World. I don't like that term. But prior to the infiltration in the 15th century from Old World people, Europeans, there was no leprosy in the New World. So somehow contact between Old World humans and armadillos is somehow... So actually, they're not the ones that give it to us. They initially got it from 
humans. Oh man, God, humans, we're such assholes. Right? It's so true. Yeah, there was no leprosy. Bringing our guns, germs, and steel everywhere. Ugh, it's the worst. For us music folk, there is an instrument called the charango, which is kind of an Andean lute. Yeah. A chordophone, if we're going to talk horn, bustle, and sax classifications, it's a chordophone. It's an Andean lute, and actually, like, the back, so, like, you think of, like, the back of a guitar, this would actually be formed out of the armored shell of the armadillo. They don't do that so much anymore because that turns out that wood is actually, <laughs> yes, again, middle. The wood is actually a better resonator than the armadillo carapace, but traditional Andean instruments. And then finally, this fun fact. Apparently during the Great Depression, because armadillos are so plentiful in the southern United States, that people were eating them during the Depression as an easy source of meat. And they were even called Hoover hogs because of President Hoover. But his name was attached to so many shitty adaptations associated with the Depression. So, like, Hoovervilles were the camps where people would be essentially these, like, shanty towns that people would set up in the wake of the Great Depression. Hoovervilles or even Hoover Leather, which was just the cardboard that you would put on your shoes that needed patched up. We'd like to thank you, Herbert Hoover from Annie. Yeah, so Hoover Hogs, another name for armadillos. And I think that is where I will wrap this book report up. But any questions <laughs> about Dillo's? Dillo questions? I think that you've answered all my Dillo questions. I don't know. Can we like can we petition the Cincinnati Zoo to rename poor Shuckles? Snuckles. <laughs> Oh, I forgot the best part, and I forgot what actually got me onto this in the first place. Holy crap. Okay, so my brother texted me this news story last week about, I think it's the three banded armadillos had some babies recently, and they had a whole, like, Facebook poll whether to name it Scuttles or Quesadillo, and guess which name was chosen? Quesadillo. Quesadillo, Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so that's the, the newest Bodie name. Boat face of armadillos. Oh right. God, humans! We're just the worst. The potential for armadillo names is just so great. Oh, and but, that is, those were the options. Yeah, scuttles and quesadillo. Yay! I'm sure that they were picked by the people that have to interact with those creatures the most. Well, I think they had a whole bunch of names submitted, and then the zookeepers themselves narrowed the names down to scuttles and quesadillo, and then put it up on Facebook for a vote. And apparently it was like the closest vote of all of those name polls. It was like quesadillo won by 51%. Whoa. <laughs> I need to get in on these submissions. Like, what about Slorge, you know? I know. They could have done a lot better than um, Quesadillo, I think. But it does make me hungry. Well, why don't we take a minute so that you can have a snack? Okay. Thank you. Big time. Big time. It's time to rediscover your prehistoric power. It's time to unlock your Singulata spirit. It's time to explore your Pelosa potential. Here at the Temple of Zanarthra, we believe in the power of you, your abilities, your vitality, and your motivation. Don't you think it's time to make that one big change in your life? Join us. 
have become one of millions who, since the Paleocene era, have discovered the true meaning of life. The first phase of your personalized Zenthara power plan is designed to slow down your life, slow down your distractions, and ultimately free your mind of all concerns beyond eating, sleeping, and loving. With our patented metabolic dimming system, MDS, we will slow down your distractions, slow down your worries, and ultimately slow down your life. Following the MDS, the next phase of your Zenarthra power plan is your glorious transition to our insect ingestion initiation. Here you will slowly move away from your current diet to enjoy a steady and nutritious stream of ants, grubs, and termites. Their characteristic crunch will be a constant reminder of your increasing Xenarthra power and your growing readiness to move on to the final level of Xenarthra actualization. The diminished dentata, the final and most exciting stage of the Xenarthra power plan. Here you will learn the ancient truth that unites all Xenarthrans, specialized and highly developed teeth are merely a smokescreen keeping you from ultimate fulfillment and personal promise. Whether you prefer a simple grinding down procedure or a full extraction, you are only an incisor away from unlocking your true potential. Call us today to receive your very own introductory Temple of Xenarthra information packet and truly discover once and for all your own prehistoric power! Pets, I wish you had also Pets, I wish you had also 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 met. Also I met. wish you had also met. Welcome to our favorite segment, Pets I Wish You Had Also Met, with our special guest, Erica. So we've heard in the background, potentially, we have another animal pal guest on Animal Fan Club. So Erica, do you want to tell us about your pal? Absolutely. So my little pal's name, full name is Stanislas Stan the Man, Hoyt Avenue, Dicker Peck, Esquire. <laughs> he is a budgerigar, aka a parakeet. But that's sort of erroneous. Parakeets can be lots of parrots or little smaller parrots. So he's a budgie. We call him Stan and he's great. Now, Dan, my husband and I, we both share a birthday and this year's birthday was shared in quarantine, a uh, very epic trip that we had planned to England and Scotland, culminating in a visit to Isla, land of delicious brown alcohol that we like to drink in great quantities. That became no longer possible. So we were a little (laughs) bit despairing. Um, We drank at home a little bit too much the night before and decided to go for a run on our birthday, March 30th. And so we're running up around Astoria Park and running back down. And um, for those of you Astorians who listen to this podcast, I would just want to let you know a little secret 
and that is above the tennis courts in Astoria Park, there is a red-tailed hawk's nest that's been occupied for maybe the past 12 or 15 years. And it's the same male, and wow. he's had a few partners, and it's really fun to watch these incredible animals just lord over their wonderful park. And so... You know, Dan and I were having like our kind of sad birthday run and Dan was like, I know what would make me happy. Let's go look at the hawks. So we turn, we're going Aww. along the cyclone fence. Another little back story. Dan and I are both like avid birders. In fact, like I am an amateur yes. ornithologist. Yes. And so, yeah, that's like if I hadn't pursued music as a career, I would be like, I don't know, banding birds somewhere in the Alaskan wilderness. Oh, I love that. We turn the corner, we're like underneath this cyclone fence, and all of a sudden we hear this chirp, chirp. And we both look at each other and are like, what in God's name is that? And we look up and there's a little green and yellow budgie. <gasps> we're just like, what the fuck, budgie? What are you doing here? A little escapee man. And so we were like, such a pretty bird, budgie, come here. And, you know, it was kind of a cold, a chilly, drizzly day. And the bird just like chirped at us and landed on Dan and I grabbed his little feathery ass and we found oh. a pile of discarded boxes from some sort of electrician's project and put him in a dry clean box and carried him the mile home. And I went on a New York City Pet Finder looking for any posts related to missing budgies. We let him kind of hang out in our bathroom and get warm and dry and little Sir chirps a lot, chirped a lot. <laughs> we went to our incredible local pet store, Tom's Pet Supply. Shout out to Tom's, which is right next door yeah. to City Fresh on uh, 21st Street and Broadway in Astoria and bought a little cage for him. Just we decided to adopt Stan the Miracle Birthday Bird after many calls to like pet stores and veterinary practices, just seeing if anyone had reported a missing budgie. But we learned from Tom, the amazing owner and manager of Tom's Pet Supply, that a lot of people kind of keep these incredible, brilliant little birds just as glorified feathery goldfish pretty much. And much like, oh. you know, you, your goldfish that you won at the junior high school fair, you might just like dump it into the East River. Oh. And so we I think that Stan was probably just like released uh, and that he probably didn't escape. He is awesome like he was obviously hand raised because he knows to get on your finger and he knows that people are food sources not to like chomp on us but <laughs> we're the the bringers of seed important distinction <laughs> yeah we're like the the millet givers the millet givers yeah we're the millet givers and he's that's another metal band oh yeah the millet he's the millet muncher the mighty mighty millet muncher yeah like long story short he is now getting used to human hangs. So it's going to take him a while to get adjusted, but we have confidence. I mean, he's already figured out. He, he knows how to get out of his cage. He can't quite get back in on his own. Like he flies from end to end of our apartment. He has like his comfy spots on the windowsill and my very fancy Manzanita branch jewelry holder from West Elm <laughs> is now like his fucking budgie playpen. So, oh my God. So that's, yeah, that's like the very long story of Stan, our new roommate. Well, like, what a beautiful, I guess, turn of events out of such a shitty situation. It's like it was meant to be. Yeah, the budgie turned a bummer birthday around. Like, he was a, truly a gift from the cosmos. Now, another little backstory on me I grew up with 
budgies and pet birds. For 12 years growing up, we also had an Indian ringneck parakeet, which is quite a big, loud, and amazing creature to share a house with. Oh my gosh! Again, amateur ornithologist here, I'm like so obsessed with birds. My entire Instagram feed is just full of amazing budgies and amazing Indian ringnecks and all sorts of pet birds. And I've like dreamed and pestered and prodded my spouse, like, please, can we get one? And then he got us. <laughs> oh, that's the best. Uh. What a fantastic story. Oh my goodness. That's so cool. Oh, and I love that he's just been like chiming in this whole time. Yeah, he's kind of, he's kind of, he, he's chirped out right now, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he got all of his chirps out, but now oh, it looks like he's waking up. Oh no, he tucked his little foot back up into his feathers. Oh, that is so cute. He's ridiculously cute. I'm in love with this little animal. And I think we got a glimpse of him a little bit earlier. Is he, is he kind of green? Yeah, he looks, he's very handsome. He's typical of what a budgie would be like in the wild. So their bodies are green and they have like wonderful little, I don't know, when he fluffs up his feathers in a certain way, he looks like a little green centurion with a yellow helmet. And he has like a beautiful scalloped, like scalped black stripes on his back. And when he flies, there's like kind of this hidden, this beautiful like blue feathered part of his tail that is revealed when he flies. Pretty surprise. And spreads out his little tail tail feathers yeah so i think you guys should do like a, a budgie episode oh my gosh i would love to because they're truly incredible creatures like they say that aborigines used to follow their flocks like their teeming flocks and they flock like starlings almost yes. but the aborigines would follow these budgie flocks to find water <gasps> brilliant oh my gosh i love birds so much so much hence all of our squawks i love squawking like a bird yes Oh my gosh, what a great pet. I wish you had also met. Yeah, Stan the man. Well, Stan the bird. I stand Stan. That's so cool. I also stand Stan. Yay! Do you have any enrichment items or things that you kind of keep around to kind of keep him like busy or active? Um, well, here's the thing. Amazing Tom of Tom's Pet Supply. He's <gasps> a licensed animal rehabilitator. We took him in just to make sure. We, so we brought in Stan to Tom to make sure that Stan was healthy and okay. He is. And he's about a year and a half old. So he's like okay. sort of a newly pubescent budgie. So he's lived the, this first, like these first formative years in his life, basically like in a boring cage, not really interacting with anyone. And nor has he like had a lot of experience with toys. Okay. So toys kind of freak him out. He has only just come around to his, It's this is like classic budgie toy, his Olympic rings with a little bell. Okay. <laughs> so now he knows to like peck the top one and like ring the bell. <laughs> and so we've got like a bunch of bells. I tried to give him a mirrored pagoda, <laughs> but I don't think he even had like this little mirror. It looks like a Chinese lantern almost with like a bell okay. on it, but it fucking mortified him. And so I was like, I'm just going to take it away and take off the bell. So he's got like a bunch of bells and he's got, we bought him like a, a much more, this it's like a vaulted Gothic cage which is like a goddamn budgie palace yes. so he's he's like living his best life 
with some natural perches. And so I'm just like trying to find out what, what he's into and just like slowly introducing mm-hmm. things to him. Yeah. Cause this could take many months. His greatest joys in life are we have two giant staghorn ferns that hang in our front picture window. And so those are kind of his favorite play pens. Like he likes to climb up and down the ropes that they hang from the ceiling from. Oh, cool. Yeah. And he likes to hang out in the ferns. I leave treats for him in the ferns so he can kind of forage in the ferns for his, uh, uh, Nutriberries. <laughs> Shout out to the Lefebvre co- company and their fine, fine <laughs> products. Love um, and I'll like put fresh greens. He lo- fucking loves broccoli, but only if I rubber band it to the lock on the window. <laughs> So peculiar. Yeah, he's got his really weird little budgy ways. So yeah, it's just interesting kind of taking cues from him and finding out what makes him comfortable. Yeah. And that the most important item is millet. Got it. <laughs> oh gosh, how cool. Oh, I'm just having like such like lovely images of your apartment with just like plants hanging and just bird flying amongst them and just having the best time. That's so cool. Oh yeah, no, he he just recently cuz I don't know if he was in used to be in a house with like kids or yappy dogs. Um unlike most budgies which are like budgies by their nature forage for food on the ground or like in low like grass grassy plants where they get their seeds and he's mortified oh. of being below shoulder level. Like he loves to sit on the finger, but he doesn't like going any like lower than a human shoulder. And so it was like kind of huge deal when two of, he like jumped into two of our lower plants like a few days ago. Oh wow. He's kind of working his way down, like hung out in the aloe plant, which was fine. And then hung out in the jade plant, just also to those animal writes conscientious people don't worry all of our plants in this house are (laughs) non-toxic right oh it sounds like you've given him such a great home we're trying i love him so cool oh i love this this is the best segment i think this is my favorite segment mike just (laughs) oh thanks for having us i'm sorry that stan chirped himself out earlier stan do you have any more chirps for us he is doing the comfy sleep and tucking his little birdie head into his fluffed up feather pillow. Oh my gosh. I love that bird to do that. It's, I know. It really just it kills me. <laughs> so cute. I also love it when he, I'm sorry. I'm just like going cute over. No, I just like, oh my gosh. Oh, it just makes me melt when he like mumbles into his fluffed up feather pillow. <gasps> oh. oh my gosh. Oh, that is like, oh my gosh. I would love to hear that. That's so cute. He's, he's pretty conked out. We uh, we had him covered up, but Dan and I stayed up too late binge-watching Law & Order SVU. Oh, I've been there. <laughs> Sorry, Stan. <laughs> oh, so sweet. Yeah, that great edition of Pets I Wish You Had Also Met. 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 Pets I wish you had met. Also met. Yes, pets. Texana, you. Texana, we. Texana, who? Texana, me. Kingdom. Animalia. Animals are cooler than plants. Philo. Mollusca. I'm on a mollusk journey. Class. Scaphopoda, five, six, seven, tusk. Order. Dentali day, it tapers uniformly. Family. Dentali day, they're relatively large tusk shells. Genus. Dentalis, Cheerio, bonjour. Species. Malgaris, it's the common tusk shell. You'll find it on a sandy bottom. Oh, 
sandy bottoms, tusk shells. Mike, you really are on a mollusk journey these days. I love I it. I sure am. So I did a bivalve last week, and you had done your gastropod friend, the snail friend. Yeah, the common garden snail. And they were both hermaphroditic. And yes. they had interesting processes of reproduction. To say the least. The snail has a love dart. Erica, just to bring you up to speed. Oh my gosh. I know about this love dart. I do. You know about the love dart? Oh yeah. Oh yes. Good for you. I didn't know about it. I thought I was being pranked by Wikipedia and learning about the love dart. And the clams use broadcast spawning where they just (laughs) kind of release their eggs and sperm (laughs) into the water. And And just hope for the best. Yeah, there will be more clams, and there somehow managed to be more clams. It's very. And it works. It works. Man. It blows my mind. I can't make this stuff up. So the scaphopods are commonly called the tusk shells. Okay. That's what they look like. They look like little baby tusks, like white tusks. They're maybe the size of a golf pencil, maybe slightly smaller. <laughs> They'll frequently curve a little bit, and they have openings at either end. Okay. They'd be very great for, like, pretending to be a vampire. You could take, like, two tusk shells and put them in your teeth. They are one of the seven extant classes of mollusks. So, again, we've talked about gastropods. We've talked about bivalves. Now we're talking scaphopods. Okay. There's about 500 described living species. It's entirely marine. They only live in salt water. And they've been found at depths from about 20 feet to 23,000 feet. So they're a pretty versatile species in terms of depth. Some of the deep water species are cosmopolitan, so they're found all over the world. Ooh la la. But then as you get closer to coastal regions, then that's where this kind of specific species sort of situation appears to pop up. We have two orders of scaphopods, the Dentaliidae, which we're talking about, and the Godilidae. <laughs> the Dentaliidae contain most of the larger species and have a slightly different shell shape. The Dentaliidae tapers uniformly, but the Godilidae, it kind of like tucks in at the end. So the opening at the big end of the shell is slightly smaller than the widest point of the shell, if that makes sense. It's almost like as if it's wearing a turtleneck. Yeah. They have a foot coming out of the big end. That We're okay. going to consider the big end the front of the animal. Okay. And the Dentaliidae foot is boat-shaped, which is where their name comes from, Scaphopod means boat foot, boat-shaped foot. Okay. And the Gadilidae foot is star-shaped. And the two orders have slightly different organ arrangement. Then we get to the family, which they're relatively large. Then the genus, kind of France and Britain, and the species is vulgaris. It's known as the common tusk shell, okay. which is probably just the only reason we call it that is because it was closest to the English-speaking countries. Gotcha. There wasn't a lot of information from family on down, and the differences in the order I've kind of already touched on. We're really going to be taking a view of the entire class of the scaphopods. Okay. They're the most recent class of mollusk to appear in the fossil record. So you could say they're the youngest mollusk. Aww. They date from the Mississippian Carboniferous period, which is about 360 million years ago. They're the only class of mollusk that's exclusively infaunal, 
which means that they live on the bottommost oceanic sediment in the benthic zone, which is okay. from where the water ends and the sediment begins mm-hmm. down into the sediment. Wow. So what they do is they take their foot, which is on the big end of the animal, the front of the animal, and they use that foot to burrow down into the benthic zone, okay. the substrate. And then the top, the back end of the animal, the pointy part, Mm -hmm. is just below the surface of the sediment. Because if it was sticking out, then predators would see it. So it just kind of buries itself in the dirt. So they probably wouldn't be in the same zone as, or same part of the ocean as like a walrus, right? But this could ostensibly be a creature that the walrus with his vibrissae, when he's like going through and kind of ruffling up bottom of the ocean floor, he could potentially unearth a tusk shell. I would say that in the description of the walrus, where it says that he uses his vibrissae to find bivalves and other mollusks, I would say that the scaphopod is the other mollusk or one of the other mollusks. Sorry, Stan is loud and it's making it hard to learn. Let me get this straight. So... Such a disruptive student. He's very That's okay. We can clarify any points. No, no, no. So, hey, we've got these delicious little, I'm assuming they're delicious, little creatures. They're living in the unkosher zone, deep down in the sediment. Right. And throughout the family, like, is there variation in the ocean depth at which they can survive? Or, I mean, are they primarily coastal? Sorry, forgive me. Again, my bird is very disruptive. Well, they are not primarily coastal, it it seems. I have to say that I found it a little difficult to get comprehensive information. From what I read, they live at varying depths and that there are species that are better suited to deep sea environments. And those are the ones that have a cosmopolitan distribution, which means that they live all over the world. So yes, there does seem to be some variation. There, Like I said, there's 500 different species. But I think that in terms of mollusks of note, that perhaps the scaphopods are not the most interesting to study, maybe. I think maybe cephalopods and gastropods and bivalves are maybe a little bit sexier to study and maybe have more variation and more species numbers and those types of things. Got it. So we remember our mantle, which is a significant part of the molluscan physiology. It's the goop inside. It's the goop inside, yeah, like the Kate Bush album. (laughs) So the mantle covers the shell's entire inner surface, and there's an opening in the shell and in the mantle at the front and the back. So there's the mantle cavity, that little water column, is along the entire length of the tusk shell. The water enters the mantle cavity through the apical aperture, which is at the top, like the one that's closest to the sky, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. And it's wafted along the body surface in the mantle cavity by little cilia, little hairs. Mm -hmm. They don't have gills. So what they do is they pull the water into the mantle cavity and absorb the oxygen absorb the oxygen into the surface of the mantle. Oh. And then after about 10 to 12 minutes, they shoot that water back out the tiny little 
rear opening and then suck in more water. So they also don't have like a through system of water like other mollusks. Huh. Isn't that interesting? It's fascinating. Yeah, they have essentially like one input and output for their water as opposed to a through like separate intake and output siphon moment. So after they dig into their little benthic zone home, they really dig in by dining on one-celled foraminifers and other tiny creatures that they find in between the grains of sand. It catches its food with these little keptacula, which are cute little tentacles with sticky ends. Okay. And this is, again, this is out of the big end of the mollusk. That's where all this business is. And so they use their cute little captacula to bring the food to its mouth. Meredith, I know you're wondering about the foraminifers hard calcareous shells, but don't worry. The scaphopod cracks the shell with its radula before digesting the foraminifers in its stomach using digestion fluid from the hepatopancreas, its main digestive organ, which is part pancreas, part liver. Wow, you answered that whole question without me even having to ask it. That's what I'm here for. So let's just kind of review that really quick. Yeah. (laughs) Essentially what it's saying is these single-celled organisms kind of have hard, like, calcareous, like, calcium carbonate-type shells around the outside of its single cell, apparently. Yeah. So the scaphopod has developed this radula, which is essentially a tongue. And it uses it to break the shell of this single cell organism so that it can eat it. And then the hepatopancreas is this main digestive organ. And in cephalopods, which are squids, octopuses, cuttlefish, etc., and scaphopods, which is what we're talking about today, this hepatopancreas does the same thing that a pancreas and liver does in a mammal. Okay. Cool. Arthropods are also really into this hepatopancreas thing. So it's a new organ that I'm learning about. It's a two for one. Exactly. This does highlight a difference in the order. The radulae and the cartilaginous oral bolsters of the <laughs> gadilidae are structured like zippers. <laughs> and so the teeth actively crush the prey by opening and closing on it repeatedly. But in our order... The dentaliidae, the radulae, and cartilaginous oral bolsters work ratchet-like to pull the prey into the esophagus, sometimes whole. Oh, say cartilaginous. Wait, what was that? Cartilaginous oral bolsters. (laughs) Yes. We unintentionally have come up with the most metal episode ever. This is glorious. It's so true. Oh, my gosh. And these names, my goodness, they're just so So once the scaphopod has depleted an area of all its food, it will just kind of get up and move elsewhere. Yeah, how does it do that? (laughs) Well, it has its foot. Okay. So it can kind of use its foot to move around. And I saw this video of a scaphopod burrowing. And what it does is the foot extends kind of far out of the shell. It seemed then it will dig in the sand and then it will like pull itself like it'll be just kind of this fleshy goop inside sticking out into the sand and then it will retract its shell over itself. So kind of like crawl sort of thing. Does that make what? sense? So good. Yeah, a little bit. That's really way wild. cooler than a scallop. You know how scallops can kind of 
swoosh their way, sashay their way through the ocean waters. This yeah. is much more Luddite and metal. Yeah, yeah. But like the bivalves, it says that it's sessile, which means that it can't really locomote by itself. Because we had a question about this last week when I was talking about my giant clams. Some clams have feet, so you would think that it would not be sessile. But it seems like, in general, like the bivalves and the scaphopods are considered sessile because they don't locomote quickly. They do move, but they don't move with any sort of speed or agility or anything like that. They're in no hurry. So I just want to recap that the scaphopods, we have their faces are just buried in the sand. They use their tentacles to kind of reach into the sand below them and grab tiny particles of food and pull it up to their mouths, which is very relatable because I'm over here sitting on my couch, burying my hands in between the couch cushions to find tiny particles of Cheetos that are stuck (laughs) between the springs. Same, same. And then just like the scaphopod, when I deplete an area of its food resources, in my case, the couch, then I will move to another location where there are more available food sources like uh, the other couch, you know? (laughs) So a bit more about the goop inside. They don't have heart oracles or gills and blood vessels. The blood is held in sinuses throughout the body cavity and then is pumped through the body by the rhythmic action of its foot. I know. Okay, metal, the rhythmic action of its foot. (laughs) Yeah. Pumps the blood. It has two bass drum Yes, exactly. (laughs) The heart is a characteristic feature of all other mollusca groups. But in our scaphopods, it's totally lost or just reduced to a thin fold of the pericardium, which is like the sac that contains the heart and the major blood vessels. Some feel that the perianal blood sinuses regular beating is just like a heart, but I don't know, you know, and they have an interesting waste and blood system that you should read all about. So I'm happy to open that line of inquiry. (laughs) Still a little unclear about the goop inside generally. They have a nervous system that's similar to cephalopods. Apparently, there's one pair each of cerebral and pleural ganglia, which is more or less the animal's brain. And then there's a separate set of pedal ganglia in the foot. And then there's visceral ganglia further back in the body. And they connect to the pavilion ganglia via long connectives. So many ganglia. It's a ganglia fest in these tiny little tusk shells. And then they don't have any eyes or osphradia, which are like the olfactory organs or other real distinct sensory organs. They may have had eyes that degenerated over evolutionary time. It seems like they mostly exist in this sort of tactile touch world sort of thing where they detect food and bring it to them. And then it did say that if they were startled, one of their main defenses was to just get as still as possible. And then they will uh, not trigger the electrical sensory predatory organs of predatory fish who can detect like an electrical movement of a tiny muscle move. Like they'll just freeze for a little while and then assume that their potential predator is gone and then they'll start like kind of wiggling their little tentacles to get delicious food bits. It's like after you, you're kind of in corpse pose in yoga and then you kind of, to get back to reality, you start by just kind of like barely wiggling your fingers and just very slowly coming back into movement. Yeah, that's exactly right. Meredith, 
we're about to talk about Tusk Shell Romance. Oh, goodness. I can only imagine that it's just weirder than the other cephalopod and gastropod sagas we've encountered thus far. Tusk. The rumors are true. Just like the penguin, the scaphopods have separate sexes. They are not hermaphrodites. Whoa. They have a single gonad, which takes up much of their posterior, so the thin, pointy end of the shell that points kind of up, out of almost out of the sand. They are broadcast spawners and as such it's not as if they met at the dance and then play on mrs and mr wonderful will instead simply shed their gametes into the water through the nephridium gametes are essentially a generalized term that means sperm and egg yeah in a species that has male and female the egg is the larger of the two gametes and then the sperm would be the smaller of the two. Wait, gametes or gametes? That's how I learned it. Potato, potato, tomato, tomato. Yeah. I I'm so. reading this and pronouncing it. <laughs> I'm reading this on the internet and pronouncing it in my heart. So I could be wrong with pronunciations that we are not experts. We just have unbridled enthusiasm. How did you learn how to say it? I learned how to say it like gametes, but. Gametes. Well, yeah, we're going to trust that. Gametes. Mrs. and Mr. Wonderful have shed their gametes into the water through their nephridium. And even though heroes are hard to find, the gametes will rendezvous for a tango in the night. (laughs) And then after some time, the fertilized eggs will hatch into a free-living planktonic trochophore larva. Oh my goodness. Which then develops into a veliger larva that more resembles the adult form. The exact trochophore veliger situation is a bit of a mystery to me, but I think it's really interesting that so much plankton is really just baby mollusks that you can't necessarily identify as such from sight. Okay, interesting. And then their foot originates prior to the metamorphosis. The tentacles develop after the metamorphosis, and they remain univalved, so one shell, throughout their entire morphogenesis. Interesting. Tusk. So, okay, two questions. They generate that shell, right? Correct. So, like, everyone else. It's that in and of itself, that process, I just can't wrap my mind around. So, as you started talking about these guys, Mike, I Googled it. I got thrown for a loop a little bit because I initially came across (laughs) these hermit crabs that had taken up residence, I guess, in some former gaffapods. And it's very cute because you've got these little, like, crab-looking things, characteristic crabs, the little eyes and the claws, but they're, they've got these tusks on their backs, tusk combs. That's interesting. Yeah, it's very cute. I don't know if you'd be able to see this. Oh, wait, I can see that. That is really cute. But, yeah, at first I was like, wait, is that what these creatures are? But, no, these are just hermit crabs that have taken up residence in former tusk shells. Yeah, the scaphopods, I think you would recognize them from perhaps not popular culture, but maybe from our consciousness as those sort of beaded chest armor that's particularly prevalent with the Sioux people. Oh! And so if you think of those kind of long white shell moments that Uh could be bones, could be whatever, they're mollusk shells. And that raised an interesting question for me because I think of the Sioux as generally in sort of the Dakota area. Right. Mm -hmm. And so using those shells as armor perhaps signifies trade 
or something. I thought that there was a whole line of inquiry there that would be really interesting to explore. And they're like the actual shells themselves, not simply like fossilized, uh, fossilized objects from, you know, the Badlands or something. Sure. It seems that they would not be fossilized objects because these scaphopod shells are kind of ready-made beads already. You know, they have an opening at each end. They're just ready to go. You just string them up and bam, you got a necklace, you know. (laughs) That's amazing. I know exactly what you're talking about, Mike. With those beads. Yeah, me too. I would have never thought. Same. Those appear to be scaphopod shells. Again, there was so much here where I was just kind of trying to find more research or corroborating evidence. And I would find one article that would say one thing and one article that would say something slightly different or maybe not say those things. So I think that there's a rich vein of exploration. And then really the last thing that I want to kind of leave us with is this website that I found. It's worms. (gasps) the World Register of Marine Species. It's marinespecies.org. And it contains links to the original description of the creatures. So if it was described in 1858 in some book, then it will link to that book that you can then view on, you know, an academic website or some sort of, you know, JSTOR or something like that and kind of go down that route. Yeah, Worms is pretty chill. (laughs) So do you guys have any boat foot questions, concerns, traumas, complaints, questions? Oh, my gosh. Can you eat them? I think that they'd be a very low-yield food source, and I didn't find anything about eating them. No. Okay, just curious. I bet you probably could, like, if you treated them the same way you treated bivalves or whatever. Totally. These things are smaller than a golf pencil, though. You'd really need a lot of them. Okay, yeah. But maybe because they're so tiny, they're, like, extra delicious. Yeah, like with a lemon herb butter situation. Yes, the tiniest animals are the most delicious ones. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, if you think about, like, escargot, that's not a lot of meat either. Uh, But, see, you drown anything in butter, and it's just tastes, tastes miraculous. It's true. It's true. I've really discovered my love of butter throughout this quarantine i've been just going through so much of it because i'm putting it in everything i'm not using olive oil anymore to cook it's just straight butter (laughs) oh sam the last time i went to costco i bought two four packs of Kerrygold, and i'm sort of ashamed to admit how much i've gone through in only a a two weeks (laughs) it is just so delicious there is just nothing better and even like we got some um it's made from cashews, so it's dairy-free, but it tastes exactly like butter. So even for our dairy-free friends, there's delicious options Oh, yes, there I've too. had that delicious option, and it is, it is pretty darn good. Yeah, very impressed. Well, yeah. I'm glad that we've all arrived to the agreement <laughs> that butter is delicious, and it just took exploring some obscure-to-us mollusks from the benthic zone to get there. Okay, whatever it takes. Amen. Uh, break time? Yeah. Oh, hey, Sarah. Hey, Cecilia. Touch wing tips. Tips up. Tips up. That was fun. What are you up to, Cyrus? Just been working on this nest improvement project. I'm in the final design stages and I'm about to start hunting for supplies. Just came from the Class Aves Nest Systems Showroom, aka Cans. Cans! 
the latest retail outpost of Brand Clubby. Squawk! That's great news. Brand Clubby is known for a high level of product quality. What sort of supplies are available at Cannes? Twigs. Dead leaves. Grass clippings. Rock! Pebbles and small rocks. Mammal fur. Moss and lichen. Rock! Spider web silk. Mud. Textiles. Rock! 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 And that's only a partial list. Rock! It's very exciting. Cyrus, rock! That's right, Cecilia. I'm overcome with excitement. Do y'all want to fly back to Cannes? right now? That sounds cool, Cyrus, but Sarah and I have an important flock council meeting to get to. You can take these flyers, though. I grabbed a few extra with my talons. Use discount code FLYHIGH20 for 20% off your first cans purchase. How considerate of Brand Clubby to make a great product even birder by offering discount code FLYHIGH20 for 20% off my first cans purchase. That's why Brand Clubby is the only company that has earned the JD Partridge Award for excellence in Class A's related consumer goods for five years running. Organic faro? I think it is, Meredith. It's definitely a very grain-dominant smell. I think this means we're in the feed bag. You're probably right, Meredith. Where else would we be? At home. Okay, so let's just get in here. So, first question is from Larry from the bowling alley, and he wants to know, if polar bears played a sport, what sport would it be? I'm going to just go ahead and say curling. Feels like the right sport for polar bears. So, so true. That's exactly what I would have said. Sorry, I'm just like jumping in here. Oh, no, no. That's, that's exactly the point. Um, curling. Oh, that's so great. I didn't immediately think about that. I don't know why I thought soccer. <laughs> but I think curling makes much more sense given their habitat and the availability of ice. Well, decreasing availability of ice, unfortunately. I was also thinking bowling. Yeah. And maybe that's why this particular question haver has an affinity for the polar bear and posited this question. Yeah, yeah, Larry from the bowling alley. Um, Yeah, it does feel like a very, like, sport you can kind of hang out and drink beer and you're not really moving so much. It's more of a game of skill and fine motor control and less of a sort of aerobic activity. Right. Right, because I can't see, like, a polar bear getting into anything too, like you said, aerobic, high impact. They're more lumbering, and I think, like, both bowling and curling would be really appropriate for, you know, the amount of energy a polar bear is willing to extend. Mm, Yeah, that's great. Okay, so I think we can say a fish position would be either, like, bowling or curling. Ding, 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 ding. All right, Peter from Mazatlan sent us one of our favorites, a mate pair feed upon. We have the cockroach, the Labrador retriever, and the cane toad. Oh, wow. Okay. Wait, wait, wait. The One more time. Cockroach, Labrador retriever, and the cane toad. <sighs> I'm just going to go ahead and feed upon the cockroach. I'm currently at war with some of my <laughs> oh, no. cockroach enemies. 
and I have no patience for them. I will kill on sight. I have no desire to either mate with or pair with a cockroach, and I'm going to get that delicious protein snack. Yeah, I think the more I'm thinking about it, I, I, I'm with you definitely on the feed upon the cockroach. Crunchy. Yeah, I think it's a unanimous feed upon the cockroach here today. For sure, because I don't want to pair with it. I can't imagine it being someone I want to like hang out with. What would we even talk about? I know, and who knows where that thing's been. Ugh, yeah, I don't want to like just sitting back on my couch, like legs crossed. Get out of here, dude. Seriously, no patience. Every time I walk into the kitchen, they scurry away. I don't want that behavior from a animal that I'm mating with or pairing with, you know? No way. Yeah, okay, so definitely feed upon that cockroach. What about pair with? I mean, I do have a question about the Labrador. If it's a blonde Labrador, we do know that blondes have more fun. But I think that in terms of just like a long-term pairing, I think a chocolate or a black lab would be really good for that. And the blonde, I think, would probably be good for that too. I'm kind of leaning towards pairing with the Labrador and mating with the cane toad, you know, just kind of like an amplexus pose moment, you know, just kind of hang out on the back of the cane toad for a little while and then just kind of like move it along, you know, hmm. that feels right to me. Yeah, I think that's kind of what I was thinking too, because if you watch this cane toad documentary, Erica, you'll see where that they have a real zest for lovemaking. Oh, awesome. So I figure like, why not do it with the best, you know? Do it, go go with the experts. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah, and they even have this thing called the nuptial patch. So for the female frogs, they've got these like grooves kind of like around where their shoulders are, where the, the males will kind of like latch their feet into the nuptial patch and they just kind of hang on and assume the amplexus position and kind of hop around that way. But yeah, they always kind of seem to be getting it on and they seem, I don't know, like they kind of live to live to mate. Sounds like a blast. I know, right? Yeah, so I think definitely. And especially during quarantine, you know? Just get in that amplexus position and ride. Yeehaw! <laughs> Exactly. Toss a cowboy hat on that frog and let's go. I also feel like from the cane toad documentary, most of the humans that had relationships with the cane toads, it felt very one-sided. <laughs> like the humans were kind of projecting and putting a lot of emotion and feeling with the cane toad. Yes. And I don't know that that would be good for a long-term pairing situation. No, and also it's like they, they are poisonous, so you don't want to risk... A poisoning. A poisoning, that's the word. Yeah, you don't want to risk a poisoning. So, and you know, a Labrador is not going to poison you with anything but kisses and licks. And cuddles. And cuddles. I've got a cuddle infection. Ah! <laughs> oh, no. Oh, my God. Wait, so is our, is our pair mate feet upon unanimous? It seems yes. like it. Yeah, it really I guess does. so. Our fish position is that we're going to mate with the cane toad, pair with the Labrador retriever, regardless of its hair color, uh-huh. and feed upon the cockroach. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah, ding, 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 ding. We did it. Oh, we don't always have a unanimous decision with those, so this is great. What a great day. We got one more question. <gasps> oh, yeah. Sorry, Celine from Colorado. She asks, how is it that monkeys have all the fun? I don't know. 
Yeah. I just don't know. But they do seem to have a lot of fun. Yeah, they do, don't they? They really do. My friend today, who hopefully will be on the podcast maybe even next week, sent me some pictures of one was, I think, a bonobo. And he was just relaxed, like full on reclining, having so much fun. And then there was another, I think he's a, um, a gibbon. And he was just like, up in the trees holding both of his legs out on either side of him. Just full on happy baby, but like upright. <laughs> just showing the world his stuff. And I'm like, <laughs> those monkeys are sure having fun. I think that monkeys just know how to have a good time. And they aren't maybe moored down. If we're going to separate the apes from the monkeys, I think that apes maybe have more structured social kind of obligations, if you will. But monkeys are just a little footloose and fancy free. Yeah. Yeah. Not bound by our human societal norms. But actually, we can we can tune in potentially next week and we can ask our, our monkey expert this very question. Yeah. So I guess the fish position is that we don't totally know, but like, <laughs> stay tuned. Yeah. Ding, ding, ding. Ding, ding, ding. ding. <laughs> well, that does it for our great episode. Erica, how do our friends find you on the internet? Uh, well, you can follow me and see some cute pictures of Stan on Instagram. My Instagram handle is yes. Erica, A I R R R C U H. Erica. <laughs> On the gram, yeah. So that's again, Erica, A I R R R C U H, Erica, at Instagram. Someday when there are musical concerts again, you can stalk me on the internet. And I used to, back when there were such things as concerts, list my performance activities on my website. Awesome. Do you have recordings available? I do, actually. If you would like to hear um, my solo record called Taking Auspices. Mm-hmm which is a secret bird nod to the universe that is on uh, Tubapede Records. You can find that at Bandcamp. Just search Erica Dicker taking auspices or Tubapede Records. Tubapede like uh, centipede, which is also a nod to human centipede, the wonderfully yet terrible horror movie. (laughs) Yes. Thanks again, Animal Fan Club, for having me. This has been just like the best afternoon of quarantine so far. Oh my gosh, I love that. I know, this is, what a fun, like, thing in in disguise. Mike and I used to record these together and we'd, like, meet up and do it. But actually, by recording remotely, it's been a lot easier to actually have guests involved and it's just such a treat. It's been really, yeah, this is super fun and it's helping me get through just learning about animals and talking about animals. It gives structure to my week. And, and meeting everybody's pets. It's just... I, I can't wait to pet other people's dogs again. I know. Oh my gosh, I'm losing my mind. Well, on that note, <laughs> see y'all next week. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Animal Fan Club is created and produced by us, Meredith Jurgens and Mike Luno. We also create all our original music and sonic experiences. Send us your listener feedback questions to animalfanclubpod at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at animalfanclubpod, at Meredith Jurgens and at Mike underscore Luno. And don't forget to rate and review our podcast on your favorite app. That really helps us out. Thanks for listening to our show. We hope it makes your heart and spirit glow. We'll be here now.
next week for another meeting of the animal family.